All right, Jesse, last week was quite douchebag central. What do you have for us this week? When a young couple is brutally murdered in their home, the mother still clutching their baby boy. The authorities eventually reveal a tangled web of Facebook feuding and one killer catfish as the culprit. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about love gone fatally wrong. Whether it's deadly affairs, tumultuous trysts, or people pretending to be someone they're not. <laughs> you can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. And if you leave us a review, we will send you some stickers. Yay, stickers. So yeah, this week is crazy and I am not burying the lead. There is a master catfish at work in this one. And, you know, we've had a couple catfish episodes and I usually try to like sneak it in and have a reveal. But this one is just bizarre enough that you need to know going in that someone is not who they say they are. Oh, I don't know if I like the warning or um, like <laughs> nervous about the warning or what, but I'm yeah. something about it. This is going to be a good episode. And, you know, like we have said in past episodes, if you're new to the show, welcome. And uh, Andy and I are both very heavily pregnant right now. We are recording ahead. So we're coming to you from the past right now. We are like 36, 37 weeks pregnant. So yeah, we're huge. And when this finally comes out, hopefully Andy will have a baby already. And I will be following in her footsteps very, very shortly. Yeah, if not already. Yeah, if not already. I'm trying to I'm trying to jump the line a week and 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 have our babies born on the same day. We'll see what <laughs> see if I can convince this kid that he needs a little twin on the West Coast. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, so the sources that I used are um Too Pretty to Live, The Catfishing Murders of East Tennessee by Dennis Brooks, which was really interesting because it was written by the ADA who prosecuted the case. So this is we get some real uh, like insider trial knowledge in this. So cool. Um I also watched, and I would recommend the ID special, Too Pretty to Live, which was based on Dennis Brooks' book, and he's, you know, of course, featured in it. And there's also an episode of 2020 about the case called Hashtag Unfriended. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> From October 2015. I think that was wow. a pretty cheesy title, guys. <laughs> oh, wow. That was... Yep. <laughs> okay, well, with those sources quoted at the beginning of an episode, which never happens. It's, it's new. It's, it's a new thing. Usually I sneak it in in the middle. Um, I think we're going to jump right in. Mountain City, Tennessee is a small, safe community nestled in the mountains that border Virginia and North Carolina. 
It's a place where no one locks their doors and everyone knows their neighbor. However, the scene that met Roy Stevens the morning of January 31st, 2012, was less Norman Rockwell and more Wes Craven. Roy had been having an on-and-off-again relationship with his wife, Linda, and while the two sorted out their marriage issues, Roy was sending his mail to his old friend, Bill Payne Sr.'s home that he shared with his son, Billy, Billy's fiance, Billy Jean, and their <laughs> seven-month-old baby, Tyler. Yeah, that's three Bill-slash-Billies in the same household. You've got to be fucking kidding me. Nope. That's the way. If you ever get unclear in any part of the story, just stop me because there's Bill Sr., Bill or Billy Payne. He goes by Billy and he met the love of his life, Billy Jean. I mean, that could have happened to me. It really could have. It could have happened yeah. to both of us, Andy yeah. and Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> and then we ended up with a Nathaniel and a Daniel. We did. Yeah, which people call Nathaniel Daniel all the time. Really? That's really funny. Yeah. (laughs) Roy Stevens is coming into the house to collect his mail, and it's his old buddy. They also call Bill Sr. Paw Bill because he's, you know, obviously the dad. So he'll he'll go by like Bill Sr. or Paw Bill. And then, of course, there's Billy, Billy's fiance, Billy Jean, and their seven-month-old baby, Tyler. Oh, my God. Thank God. Yeah. (laughs) That they didn't, they weren't like, triple like Billy Billy trip over here things with Linda Roy's wife had been on the upswing so she sat in his truck as he opened the door to the quaint ranch house and hollered to the pains that he was coming in he knew his friend Paw Bill would already be up and at his job in Boone but the kids were sure to be home so early in the morning the house was deadly silent this was highly unusual for the pain home or really any home that has an infant He shouted again and felt a sense of unease creep up his spine. Once more yelling a greeting, he stepped inside the silent home. There, in the first room to his left, he saw Billy lying in a bed, his throat slashed and crimson with blood. Roy's brain couldn't compute what he was seeing, and he reached out to shake Bill awake. But he recoiled when he realized the man was completely lifeless. No, 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 he cried, and he backed out of the room. Roy immediately went to the door and screamed for his wife to call 911. Linda rushed out of the vehicle and dialed the number from the Payne's home phone. As she connected with an operator, Roy crept around the house, worried about Billie Jean and the baby, both desperate to find her, but also afraid of what he would find at the same time. Further down the hall, he discovered Billie Jean dead on the floor. He held his breath and froze in place for a moment, looking at the young mother, cradled in her arms and smeared with his mother's blood was baby Tyler. Alive? Alive. Oh God, oh God, he uttered. And then he saw the infant's chest move. The baby was alive. This would be a really hard story for us right now and for everyone. If he uh, wasn't alive. I mean, it's yeah. still tragic that this poor little, yeah. Oh, as Roy reached for the little baby boy, he saw that the back of Billy Jean's head had been blown out by a gunshot or gunshots, plural. He shivered as he brought the baby to Linda, who cried to the operator, 
the baby's alive. Oh God, thank God he's okay. But he's not making a sound. Little Tyler Payne had cried himself voiceless over the five hours he had laid in his slain mother's arms. Oh my God. That poor baby. This is like some Dexter level shit right here. Roy collapsed into his truck after the first responders arrived. He would later claim he couldn't remember a single thing after he found the baby. He was in shock, deep shock, at how such a horrible, evil crime could befall his friends and neighbors in such a small, safe community. All of Mountain City would soon follow suit. Shock mixing with grief and outrage. But maybe the culprits would end up being the most surprising element. Good country folk who loved their daughter and their girlfriend and would do anything to protect her. And the woman at the center of it all who betrayed everyone in the most despicable way possible. This is the horrific story of the slaying of Billy Payne and Billie Jean Hayworth at the keyboard typing fingertips of Janelle Potter, the killer catfish. Ooh, that title. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to call this one the killer catfish. Not burying the lead this week. So let's talk about Billy and Billy Jean in happier times. Billy Clay Payne was born July 10th, 1975, and his sister Tracy came a couple of years after. After high school, Billy got a job at Parkdale Mills, a factory that produced thread in Mountain City. He would work there until his tragic death in 2012. Billy worked hard and he played hard. He was the life of every party and he always had a smile on his face and a drink in his hand if he wasn't working. Billy had a son named Justin when he was still really young, Uh, but eventually Justin's mother took him to be raised in Florida, and unfortunately, Billy was kind of effectively cut out of his life because of the distance. In his despair, he had developed a little bit of a pill problem, opiates to be precise, but he eventually sought treatment. His lifestyle changed for the better when he met a beautiful, vivacious brunette in her early 20s named Billie Jean. Billie Jean was a cleaner at Parkland where they both worked, and Bill became instantly infatuated after they met in 2009. Billie Jean loved her family, being outdoors, playing volleyball, and she loved scoring good finds at flea markets, which reminds me of someone else I know. That's me. (laughs) She had a number of close friends she saw regularly, and both her and Bill's circles meshed flawlessly together. The two became serious almost right away, and Billie Jean moved in with Billy and his dad, Pa Bill. When she found out she was pregnant with baby Tyler in the fall of 2010, the young couple was over the moon. Tyler was born on July 11th, 2011, and they began to make plans to wed. Billy partied less, and he devoted his time to his family. He was truly a changed man, and definitely for the better. So life was looking pretty bright for Billy Payne and Billie Jean, until it all came crashing down that terrible January morning. On the scene, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation agent Scott Lott noticed that the crime didn't appear to be a burglary or drug-related. There were prescription drugs like in the home that hadn't been stolen, and the house was not ransacked. It didn't appear that it had been burglarized at all. 
Um, it appeared that the young couple had been coldly executed by a prepared and perhaps even experienced killer. But it didn't make any sense. Who could possibly harbor that much hatred toward a blossoming young family? So the TBI and state police began to canvass friends and family to find out. A few things became pretty obvious. Billy and Billie Jean had no enemies at work, no alarming family feuds, no scandalous lovers hiding in the wings, which is rare for our show. <laughs> yep. And then it's usually- Is that actually accurate though? <laughs> no, it really is. Yeah, they were- wow. Just a sweet, young, in love, monogamous couple. You don't really find that ever on this show, you know? Yeah, so why were they murdered in cold blood? That, that's what the police wanted to find out. They also, like, they were, you know, young and still, like, setting out on their life. They didn't really have enough money to inspire a financially motivated murder. So they're, they're like, stuck with nothing. There seems to be yeah. no motive for killing this sweet young couple. What they did have, however, many others reported was an ongoing Facebook feud with a local woman named Janelle Potter. Oh, wow. Yeah, that seems like a reach for everyone involved, but that's what their friends came up with because they were like, I mean, I don't know. No one else hated them. All three parties had recently unfriended each other after increasingly public disputes and harassment charges filed on one another. If they wanted to interview someone who hated Billy and Billie Jean, they need look no further than Janelle and her enabling parents, Buddy and Barbara Potter. Janelle Potter was 30 years old in 2012, though she acted and was treated as though she were much younger. Even though she was almost six feet tall and heavy set, Janelle spoke with a Minnie Mouse high voice like a baby girl and still slept with stuffed animals on her bed. Whoa. Did she still sleep yeah. at home too? Oh, yeah. Janelle was diagnosed with an auditory disability that made hearing and understanding others difficult and had been classified as special needs from an early age. She, I mean, she was very functional. She was not, you know, this was not a disability that could should have ruled her life, you know? Yeah. Um. But she was also later diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And because of these, you know, diagnoses, 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 whichever one it is, diagnosi, her parents were extremely protective over her. And they really sheltered her to her, like, disadvantage. Exactly. 100%. Moonshouncer by proxy. Yeah, kind of like that. Like, I don't think they were, like, making her sick or sicker, per se, but they were really... No, enabling the, like, the special needs aspect more Exactly. Than enabling her victimhood and her as somebody who needed help and protection and could never be on her own, you know? Did they meet the Billies? Did she meet the Billies in high school or, like, how did they know each other? Well, I'm about to get into that, Andrea. Okay. <laughs> Backstory on Miss Janelle. Yep. Janelle grew up on the outskirts of Philadelphia, but she moved with her parents to Mountain City as a young adult in 2004 so her mother Barbara could care for her own ailing mother. So she was already in her early 20s um, and, and staying at home with her parents when she moved here. Father Buddy was a retired Marine who served in Vietnam, and boy, did he like to remind people of that fact. He wore, you know, like Marine hats and shirts and like you would know immediately that he had been in the Marines if you entered his home because it was like an entire wall. Bumper of, stickers. 
medals and honors and the flag. Like it was a big military home. Buddy was a good old boy who was absolutely always packing heat. He was always carrying at least one gun on his person and usually more. There's a photo of him we'll definitely put up on the Instagram and it's him and his wife, Barbara, gardening. And like legit on his belt, he has two guns in like a row of ammo and they're just gardening in their yard. So ridiculous. It's very excessive. No matter your thoughts on gun control, having like multiple weapons and a row of ammo hanging off when your gardening. When you're gardening is a little excessive. <laughs> a little. Just a little. Buddy had suffered a back injury while at work back in Pennsylvania and he was now on disability. Barbara helped out for a little while working at Hewlett Packard, but by the time the Potters had moved to Tennessee, all three were not working. Janelle was also drawing a disability check for her many ills. At 30 years old, Janelle had never driven a car, held a job ever, or had a real boyfriend or really like any real friends, it seems like. So bad. They, I think her parents really stunted her development by never like really letting her become a real young woman, you know? Yeah, it's it's so bad. So Janelle's life existed in a small ranch brick house with her parents and online. For someone living in a state of arrested development who lacked friends and hobbies and purpose, the internet held an overwhelming allure, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So she often chatted in online chat rooms and she joined MySpace and Facebook just as early as she could. The internet became her only social outlet. It became her playground. And then much later, it became her hunting ground. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. After a few years in Mountain City, Janelle met friendly Tracy Greenwell, Bill Payne's sister, while filling her many prescriptions. Tracy, who worked at the pharmacy, felt bad for the reclusive young woman who didn't seem to have any social life outside of her aging parents. She began to invite Janelle to join the other young 20 and 30-somethings in town for outdoor excursions like rock climbing and occasional parties, though Janelle didn't drink and she was restricted by a strict curfew. So her parents would let her go to a party, but she'd have to be home by a certain time. They'd make sure she wasn't drinking. She's 30. She's 30 years old. This is like the parents' fault, to be honest. Like That's kind of what um, ADA Dennis Brooks says in this. Like he's kind of like, I really wonder what her life might have turned out to be if her parents hadn't, you know, forced this on her, you know? Crazy. Yeah, pretty soon after Tracy introduced Janelle to this whole group, um, she met Tracy's brother, Bill, and she developed a romantic crush on him. But the feeling was certainly unrequited. Bill did not feel the same way. And was he with Billy Jean already? He hasn't met Billy Jean yet. So this Got was like it. a few years earlier. Got it. Yeah, this this takes like a couple years to heat up. So this is like, Pre-2009 at this point, because that's when he met Billy. Okay. Um, Bill and Tracy introduced Janelle to their cousin, Jamie. Uh, Jamie was a shy and introverted man in his mid-30s 
who had a lot in common with Janelle. Jamie worked at the same plant as Billy and still lived in his childhood home where he had taken care of both of his parents who had become ill and eventually passed away. He hadn't finished high school. He never left his childhood house and he never traveled outside of his small hometown. Like Janelle, he was also extremely inexperienced with members of the opposite sex. So Tracy, Billy, and their friends thought Janelle and Jamie were actually kind of a match made in heaven because they both were just a little less socially developed, you know? It seemed like they would be like a good person if you're both in like your, you know, 30s, but you've never had a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It's a nice person to start with who also you might be comfortable with, you know? A hundred percent, yeah. Yeah, so they they introduced those two together. And despite the fact that a slow relationship did end up building between Janelle and Jamie, which weirdly, like, I don't know if it's because her parents, uh, like, would not let her have a boyfriend at all, or if, like, they didn't think Jamie was good enough for her, but they hid their growing relationship from her parents. So she's a 30-year-old woman who has to hide her boyfriend from her parents and her Yeah, and not like a sexy hide. No, no. This is not a good hide. Um, and even then, like even though she was kind of getting involved with Jamie, when Billy met Billie Jean, she was super jealous. Yeah. I mean, it seems she seems just so adolescent. She's very adolescent. Like, uh, you know, Dennis Brooks talks about this a lot. Like there was so many times that he felt like he was prosecuting like a teenager, not a fully grown woman, you know? Yeah, that must have been hard. It's it's bizarre. It's just a weird place to be in, you know? And I'm sure that she felt bizarre in her own life, you know? Yeah. By the time baby Tyler was born in 2011, the formerly congenial group of friends had begun warring. Janelle would later claim that Billie Jean and her best friend, Lindsay Thomas, were harassing her and even threatening her life. But Lindsay's recollection to author and ADA Dennis Brooks was a totally different situation. So this is what she said when Dennis Brooks went to interview her about what the heck was going on and what their history with Janelle was. I didn't really know Janelle, she began. Billie Jean had accepted a friend request on Facebook from her. We knew of her. Like at this point, Billie Jean and Lindsay were not friends with Janelle. It just like basically Billie Jean knew her new boyfriend kind of knew this girl, you know? Yeah, yeah. Following Billie Jean's acceptance, Lindsay accepted a friend request from Janelle as well. One day, Billie Jean told me that Janelle had talked bad about us on Facebook, Lindsay said. So I confronted her on Facebook, but she didn't stop. Then I called her at her house and she said she hadn't written anything. She said she didn't know what I was talking about. Then I started getting calls from her. She'd call me 27 times or so a day. Whoa. Yeah, that's stalker level. Then she'd send something from a Bob or people she'd make up. Amidst allegations from Janelle that Janelle was the victim of Lindsay's harassment, Lindsay stated that she was working 12 hours a day at a time manufacturing needles at the Phoenix medical plant. She said she had no reason at all to bother Janelle. I was getting all these calls from their house and her dad would be part of it, Lindsay said of Buddy. He'd get on and say to quit calling and I'd tell him, she's the one calling me. Her dad said to me that he'd kick my ass. Then my boyfriend would get on the phone. Yeah. Also, even when you're a teenager, your parents shouldn't do this. They shouldn't get on the phone and get up in your business. No. 
Then my boyfriend would get on the phone and he'd say something to them. After this routine went on for some time, Lindsay said she'd had enough. I took a lot from her until I went to the next level. She said, I never threatened her. I just told her to stop. Okay, I said, what was the worst thing you ever said back to her? I considered this question important because country people I know will only take so much. Eventually, they bite back. (laughs) Good old Tennessee, you know? I told her if I ever saw her out, things might not go so well, she answered. I probably said that online. I don't think I ever made an outright physical threat. I'm not aware if I called her names, but I can't remember doing that. I probably said more to her in helping out Billie Jean because Billie Jean wasn't a confrontational person. Billie Jean was getting more harassment online than I was. So she was just like kind of more of the outspoken one protecting her friend. Of course, yeah. Eventually, both Billie Jean and Lindsay filed harassment charges against Janelle based on the insane amount of phone calls they were receiving and online attacks levied on them by, quote, friends of Janelle's who would later be proven to be online identities Janelle created to target the women. Wow. Uh, Yeah, they also interviewed another woman who worked at like this gas station who knew, like everyone in the small town knows everybody. And so she knew Billie Jean. And Billie Jean was like filling up, getting gas at one point. And this witness to this like showed that Janelle and her mother drove up and like started screaming at Billie Jean well, she had her baby in the car and were like calling her all sorts of foul names and like yelling at her and throwing things from their car at her. Oh my God. Yeah, until the woman who worked in the gas station run, ran out and she was like, what are you doing? Get the hell out of here. And they drove away. And the poor, like Billie Jean was really young. She was only 23 when she died. So she was like crying and the woman's like, are you okay? She's like, I'm fine. These like, she won't stop harassing me. Like there was definitely proven witnesses behind the fact that Janelle was the one who was harassing these women, you know? Yeah. Yeah. In late November of 2011, the judge on the case ruled that Lindsay had not proven Janelle guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of like harassment and making the phone calls and et cetera, all the stuff that she was doing and threw the case out. And I think that's only like, you know, Lindsay didn't have all of the paperwork. She didn't have a paper trail showing it. You know, she just had her own hearsay. So while Lindsay and Billie Jean seemed to just like unfriend Janelle and move on with their lives, Janelle became even more obsessed, fabricating emails from Lindsay specifically and sharing them with her parents to prove that she was the target of vicious online bullying and harassment. So she started faking emails from Lindsay and then she would show them to her parents and be like, look what Lindsay said. Like she said, she's going to kill me. She's going to hurt me. Psycho house. Psycho. Lindsay Thomas mentioned the feud with the Potters when she spoke with the police after the murders. But even then, she wasn't necessarily convinced that like meek, unbalanced, disabled Janelle could have possibly executed Billie Jean and Billy in cold blood. I guess that even though Bill was clean, he still made some like extra money on the side with a small prescription drug hustle. So she was like, I guess there's this Facebook feud and she definitely hates us. But it's like, I mean, who who would have been doing the murdering? Would it have been Janelle? Would have been her aging parents? Like, this seems crazy that 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 could be the case. She's like, so, yeah, definitely check them out. But like, you know, maybe it's drugs. I don't know. I thought he was not doing them anymore, but he might have been selling them on the side. Oh, God. 
Yeah, Lindsay suggested if they wanted to know more about the pills or Janelle that they speak to Billy's cousin, Jamie, who may have known something about the drugs and definitely knew lots about Janelle as she believed the two were dating. Yeah. So the day after the murders, Agent Lott interviewed Janelle in the presence of her parents at the Potter home, but he didn't turn up any evidence linking her to the crime other than confirmation of the harassment allegations regarding Billy, Billie Jean, and Lindsay. This is where the, the title of the book and the ID special come into play because Janelle asserted that the reason why they were all having beef was because the women were jealous of her and that she was like too pretty and sweet and they were picking on her because she was better looking. And that is not the case. Like, I don't want to judge anyone's looks, but it, when somebody makes an assertion like that, you kind of have to step back and go, really? Hmm? So you guys <laughs> pause the podcast, go over to the Instagram. I'll try to get this one out when the podcast comes out because I don't think you'll agree. So I think that's why they named the book Too Pretty to Live because it's almost like, hmm. (laughs) Yeah, so that was what she said. And she was like, I don't know. They're all like just picking on me because I'm too pretty. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. So later that day, they also spoke to Jamie Curd, who also confirmed the conflict, but said nothing more about the Potter, Payne, Hayworth connection. On February 6th, the investigation picked up some steam when Jamie failed a polygraph miserably. What? Mm-hmm. So the investigators started putting together an idea of what happened. And they believed that Jamie was not the killer as far as being like the trigger man, but he was likely an accessory or an aide to Buddy Potter, the dad, in the killings. Mm-hmm. And began to broach the possibility that Curd was forced into participating by his alleged girlfriend's father. Jamie was a reluctant and unwilling participant, but eventually the interrogators pieced together enough grunts and yas to compile a written statement that pointed to Buddy Potter as the killer. So this is from the interrogation. I mean, literally dude has like guns and ammo when he's gardening. Like yeah. he's probably got some like anger. And it would also... Issues makes sense that he was a Vietnam vet who had seen combat in the way that they said it looked like semi-professional in the hit, you know? He had been trained to use weapons that way. So after he essentially confessed and confessed that Buddy was the ringleader and the shooter, um, when he was almost done with the interrogation, Jamie made one little slip. It was a slip that would forever taint any defense his lawyers could muster for him. Is the CIA here? That was the question Kurd asked. (laughs) Yeah, this gets weird. Get ready. This is the twist. With an incredulous look on his face, Agent Mike Hannon quickly answered no. Hannon and Lott then asked Kurd why he would ask about the CIA. Kurd then muttered something about Janelle having this brother named Chris 
uh, Janelle did not have a brother. She, he, she had an older sister who is like a whole different story that was like on the outs with their parents and was like, totally didn't speak to her parents because they're, you know, crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Oh, that sister, I feel so bad for her. But anyway, so they didn't have like a biological brother. Kurd said Chris was mad about things. The investigators knew nothing of what Kurd was talking about. Chris, CIA, not knowing where these facts would lead, the investigators didn't pursue that line of questioning any further. Little did they know that Kurd had just blurted out the key to the case. But for now, that revelation was lost to all concerned. Next, Agent Lot set up to have Kurd call Buddy. You want to help get Buddy, Lot asked. Kurd didn't really answer, but Lot pressed on. Kurd was supposed to be at work at the time at the Parkdale Mills plant where he worked the same machine as Billy Payne. So Lot wisely arranged for Kurd's call to come from the plant instead of the sheriff's department. For his call, Lot requested Kurd ask Buddy if he had gotten rid of the gun and knife used in the killings. Meanwhile, the call was to be recorded. Kurd called and Barbara Potter answered. Knowing that Kurd was to be at the sheriff's department for questioning and possibly a polygraph, Barbara asked how it went. Kurd said it went fine. Barbara replied that Chris had sent a message that Jamie had been booked and that he said he was just listening to Adam and people just hear what they hear. What the devil Barbara was referring to, neither the investigators nor ADA Brooks understood. But again, with a simple and cryptic comment, Barbara had slipped up and revealed the key to the case. And they just let you go, Barbara asked. Yeah, answered Kurd, lying. And your lie detector test, you passed, Barbara inquired. Yeah, said Kurd, lying again. Well, that's wonderful, Barbara responded. We've been praying our hearts out. Janelle oh, even God. saw an angel today come in the computer room. Excuse me? <laughs> that was it. That line just dropped and he doesn't explain it. <laughs> an angel dropped into, into the, the computer, computer room. room? Yeah. What drugs are these people on? Oh, I don't know. I want some. Maybe after the baby comes. Maybe when the baby's coming. Maybe when the baby goes. <laughs> Whoa. Um, she then let Buddy get on the phone. Less verbose, Buddy asked if everything was going all right. Kurt answered that people were pointing fingers. Pointing fingers, Buddy responded. Jiminy Christmas. Kurt then got to business in his own special stuttering and stammering way. Yeah, I, uh, I just wanted to, you know, call and uh, let you know just... uh. You got rid of everything that was from Bill's, didn't you? Uh-huh, Buddy answered. Okay, that makes me feel better, Jamie replied. Yeah, Buddy affirmed. Going uh, on with the party line, that was that's the big confession. This is the big, big reveal. And going on with the party line regarding the killings, Buddy attempted to reassure Kurd that he would be all right. They ain't got no reason to point no fingers at you or nothing, Buddy said, because Jiminy Christmas, all that shit Bill was in. I heard more stuff about gangs and things there in the last few days and stuff that he was involved in in Johnson City. Everything is crazy, and I still think it's a drug deal went bad. Knowing that he was headed to jail, possibly never Jesse, to come out again. <laughs> you're just going to skim over that, like, monologue you did? Like it was nothing? <laughs> My Jiminy Christmas? that was so good i felt like i was like legit watching like an actress really well thank yeah. you that betty lou beats got me all warmed up oh my god 
<laughs> I know everyone loved that. That episode was really fun. I mean, as fun as a murder episode can be. <laughs> the storytelling was fun. The storytelling, yes, was yeah. fun, especially when you get to take out your southern accent. <laughs> so, knowing that he was headed to jail, possibly never to come out again, Kurd had little more to say to Potter ending the call soon after. Thus, as Kurd was headed to the Johnson County Jail for two counts of first-degree murder, Lott prepared an arrest warrant for Buddy Potter as well as search warrants for his home and truck. His evidence against Buddy at that point consisted of an ill-defined motive and an uh-huh and yeah in response to Jamie's question. But that was enough. That was enough uh-huh. to go after him. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's all they needed. Buddy Potter was arrested during the wee hours of February 7th in an attempt to catch the man habitually armed to the teeth, like we've discussed, off guard. They managed to get him in handcuffs before he could pull a weapon and interrogate him down at the station. Good. At first, Buddy attempted to deny involvement in the murders, but after they played the recording of his phone conversation with Jamie, the man began to falter. The investigators tried several ways to prod Buddy into talking. He's a man of very few words. He's like, you know, stoic, veteran, you know. It was doesn't of- think he did anything wrong. <laughs> yeah. And he's obviously already trying to justify it by saying that the dude was involved in gangs. Like that's not your job to even no. out. No. I think he was a twofold thing by being like, hey, this guy was involved in bad stuff, but also I think he was trying to make it sound like there were so many other people that could have killed him, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it ended up being that when they mentioned his family, that he finally started to crack. And then- Jamie or Buddy? Buddy. So this is what got them. So they're trying to figure out, they, they had a hunch that it was Buddy. And now they have Jamie saying it was Buddy, but they still don't know why. You know, even though he had training- Uh, with weapons and in the military, he had never had any issues with the law. He had never gotten in trouble for anything. He had never had even so much of a disagreement with another person. Like, yeah, he he always- did and he just hit it well. (laughs) I mean, look at Andy's got suspicious minds over here. (laughs) Watching her little eyes like slit. (laughs) Yeah. She's watching everybody. She doesn't trust anyone. So yes, allegedly he had never had any issues with anyone else that we know about that are maybe buried in that garden. (laughs) Under the patio. Under the patio. Again, call back to Betty Lou Beats over there. So yeah, so they were kind of still trying to figure out why he did this. So they're like throwing all this stuff at him like you do, you know, when you watch an interrogation and they're like, was it because of this? Was it because of this? And then they find the thing that like hits the bone, you know? And so finally, when they say this is from his interrogation, the only reason you did it was because you were scared for your family and you love your family. This was the only way you knew how to take care of the situation, suggested Hannon. Buddy nodded. Yes, mumbled Buddy. Is that why you did it? The interrogators closed in on their subject as they do when they sense they are near a breakthrough, leaning into Buddy's personal space. 
Then Buddy opened up with a flurry of emotion, his voice cracking, holding back tears. And what he said was nothing short of bizarre. When you hear people plotting to cut your daughter in a restroom and take her out back of the store, and they they want to take her and get her so sick in the field and murder her, and they want to rape her because she's a virgin and just so much shit. And you had no other choice, said Hannon, trying to finish Buddy's sentence. No, answered Buddy, his head shaken, especially when you hear somebody's put a $3,000 bounty on her head on my wife, on me. Me, I didn't care about. Suggesting that Janelle could not protect herself, Hannon was met with Buddy's agreement. No, no, she can't. The interrogation then shifted to an attempt to get the Potter women embroiled in the mess. After all, the investigators were on a roll. A mere several hours ago, their investigation was adrift without any charges, and now they had two avowals of participation. Might as well try for two more. Yep. And just line them up. Thus, they offered to allow Buddy to call his family and let them know what he'd done. Better to hear it from him, they said. And so Buddy unwittingly went along with it, placing the call home on a phone line being recorded. He told his wife that he'd done it and that he told the investigators the story. Barbara said nothing in reply that would directly implicate her in the killings. However, she did strangely offer up herself as an alibi witness for him, suggesting that he was at their home the whole time. I saw you, she said in a manipulative tone. I saw you. Yeah, I know you did, but Buddy countered. Janelle even came to the phone and sounding upset also suggested that he was home the whole time. Barbara took the phone back and continued suggesting that Buddy was without sleep and without his oxygen. Thus, he wasn't in his right mind. Hint, hint. She's like, shut (laughs) up. (laughs) You don't know what you're saying. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Buddy would have none of it, eventually sharing with her that Jamie had talked. What? Answered Barbara, finally sounding shocked. But he said, yeah, but that Jamie had lied about parts. Without going into details, the call ended. In fact, the interrogation ended because by talking to his wife for 15 minutes, Buddy got the strength to tell the investigators that he wanted a lawyer, thus legally ending the interrogation. In all of that lengthy interrogation, Buddy never mentioned Chris. So yeah, it was obvious that Barbara knew about the murders because the first thing you would say if your husband was like, yeah, I killed some people, you'd go, what the fuck? What are you talking about? You wouldn't go, well, you were home. Yeah, you were home. You were home. Yeah, what are you talking? What are you home? You'd be TV dinner. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You would be like, what? It would just like blow your mind and you'd act surprised. She didn't act at all surprised. No. So Jamie and Buddy are booked for the murders. And And I'm assuming too that like all of the shit that he was saying about like her being like cut and like drugged and raped in a field is all shit Janelle made up. Yes, exactly. so fucked up. Well, I feel like... I mean, it should have never come to this. And I don't, I don't really ever have sympathy for anyone who murders, especially murders people while their babies are like in their arms. But he was duped hard. And like by somebody he thought was like his baby girl that he trusted who made up all of this insane stuff. So yes, that is all stuff that he believed 
was going to happen to Janelle. And it wasn't just from Janelle. It wasn't just from Janelle saying like, oh, I got this email from so-and-so, which was also fake. It was from another person that he respected. So I think it's time for us to talk about Chris. So who the hell is Chris and what does he have to do with the CIA? I was going to say CIA, case? Chris. CIA, Chris over here. So ADA Dennis Brooks dug into this case to see if there was any way he could also prosecute Barbara and Janelle, as it seemed obvious that they were involved in the murders. He received a search warrant to gather evidence at the Potter home and what he found on the family computer and in Janelle and Barbara's emails was a bewildering mess that once untangled would reveal a surprising mastermind. Also, I got to tell you guys, I do not know how this guy read like thousands and thousands of emails of these people talking because just the ones that were like featured in the book of these people Are talking they made, numbing? oh they made my head hurt like I literally had to stop and take a Tylenol I was like there's the the misspellings the grammatical errors like it is it's like trying to read notes that are being passed between middle schoolers maybe no worse thanks. no I I did the work so you don't have to <laughs> thanks Jesse you're welcome we're gonna read some of them later like ones they featured in the trial because they show the malevolence, you know? Um, but even then it's like, I, I tried to pare them down because it'll break your brain if you try to figure out what these emails say. Now, I was going to say, are you going to read them as written or are you going to read the trans? <laughs> I'm going to try. I, I can't help myself. I like, as I'm reading, I kind of like fix them. <laughs> so I'll try not to. Try so you can to. get the real, the real uh, straight email. So Dennis recovered hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of emails written by Chris over a year span. Chris was a CIA agent who had been reportedly friends with Janelle since they were little, despite protective Barbara having mysteriously never met the man. Due to the bond that he and Janelle shared, he surveilled the goings-ons in Mountain City specific the goings-ons specifically janelle's enemies and reported back to the potters and jamie and get this he used janelle's email and facebook account so cia chris is not real no of course not this lazy bitch didn't even create an email for chris she was using her own email and facebook account to catfish her parents and boyfriend janelle told her parents that she had given chris her passwords so that he could secretly correspond with the family without an email chain this is psychotic. Everyone just accepted it, Andy. They were like, oh, that makes perfect sense that he would just, you know, log into your email and write us emails from you, but really him. Even though he's in the CI fucking A. Even though he's in the CI fucking A. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And so um, Buddy didn't know how to use a computer or email. So he was involved in this because Barbara would print out the emails and give them to him to read. That's like what we're working with here. So 
Here's Dennis Brooks' account of how he I discovered. Mean, think about how much paper they wasted. You know, when you print out an email, it's like. And the, all the like, stuff at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and the header. Yeah. That is not sustainable at all. Oh, God. And you got to know. I mean, this is like probably like Hotmail or Yahoo. Or oh. like something worse. <laughs> something worse. Like the like local AOL. cable company. <laughs> Something link, link yeah. This is something link net dot net dot link dot world wide web dot internet. <laughs> oh my god, I'm dying! Oh my god, okay, yeah, I'm ready for this. Okay. I'm ready for this. Here's Dennis Brooks' account of how he discovered the Chris avatar and when he began to suspect it was Janelle. It didn't take long to determine that Chris wrote like he was a homicidal maniac. This is Dennis Brooks writing about himself. He used the most vile, revolting language imaginable. He hated people. He killed people. He killed them legally, though, because it was all a part of his duties as a CIA agent. That's what these emails said. That's why the CIA exists, right? To kill people? Despite his supposed federal employment, it was clear to me from the start that whatever the educational requirements for being a CIA agent, Chris must have forgotten practically everything he was ever taught in grammar school. He misspelled words. He transposed Wait, words. He's a fucking comedian. I know. He's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> he's really good the The book is extremely well written and he's really good he was on both the id show and the 2020 and he's great he's oh my god he's got i can't i can't really do it i mean i should try but he's got a nice like very subtle tennessee accent too so it's just like it's just like when you have like some kettle corn or something and you're like oh it's just a little sweet but it's kind of salty that's like his voice <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> he misspelled words he transposed letters his writings were a mess yet in the world of 2012 words were abbreviated and language hacked for the sake of speed as one emailed texted or tweeted so in and of itself the grammar and spelling issues did not immediately register to me as being important except for one issue over and over, I noticed a tendency of Chris's to forget to drop the E in words where he added I-N-G to the end, such as taking, loving, and caring. So he would like leave the E in it. C-A-R-E-I-N-G. So, exactly. Yeah. This error was repeated constantly. It was not a mere typo. It was not a mistake for the sake of speed. It was simply a sign of ignorance. Thus, surely this person did not work for the CIA. And wasn't it odd that Chris, the CIA operative, would have such a fascination for and preoccupation with all things concerning Janelle Potter? Everything he ever wrote was Janelle-centric. Her problems were his concerns. Her foes were his enemies. What she liked, he loved. I cannot remember how long it took me to realize it, but it was obvious that there was an extremely high likelihood that Janelle Potter was Chris. Janelle Potter's educational background was such that one might expect repeated grammatical errors. And who else would be repeatedly writing about how pretty and kind and sweet Janelle Potter was? 
blow me. Oh, she really wanted to drive that home. I mean, I don't know if she had such bad self-esteem that she had to like create these alter egos to tell her that she was good, you know? Yeah, but how about you just try to be good and you don't like set up a fucking like backdoor murder? (laughs) Yeah, where you trick your family into killing people you don't like. And creating an orphan. Ugh, oh, that goes right to the heart. Like, come on. Mm-hmm. As odd as the idea that a person might pose as a CIA agent and author inane writings, it was odder still to see the responses from Barbara's and Jamie's email accounts. They wrote back to Chris like they believed he was real. The obvious clues that Chris was not who he said he was were completely ignored. Jamie wrote as if he confided with Chris about his relationship with Janelle. Well, which she's also doing, which is really weird, is that she's like trying to get her boyfriend to say how he feels about her to her fake CIA friends. Yeah, but it seems like Jamie actually thinks Chris is real. Oh, yeah. And her parents did too, I firmly believe. I just think- I really believe that all of them were just not that bright. Okay. I really do. I, I mean, the fact that- like it comes up a couple times, like, where's the CIA at? You know, like, I mean, Jamie definitely really believed it. Yeah. I kind of think his her parents really believed it, but I don't know. That's a little less obvious. I feel like Barbara knew. Maybe. Barbara's Barbara's weird. I mean, he talks about this a little bit more in the book than I did in, you know, as I'm going to continue talking about this family, is that... Barbara was definitely like very anxious and paranoid. And she was like one of those people that is always like saying like, oh, they were looking at me. Oh, they want to hurt me. They want to kill me. Like, like everyone is out to get them constantly. And she had such like a negative and like weird persecution vibe that at least it seemed like to Dennis Brooks that she had passed that on to her daughter. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gross. Yeah. So Barbara wrote long, detailed, and oftentimes rambling emails to Chris, which there was a lot of emails to Chris. I feel like she would have just talked to her daughter if she had known. She even called him son. Barbara would write to him and ask to be able to see him. She wanted to have him over for dinner, meet him somewhere, anything. She loved him and she wanted more than just to be his pen pal. Yet- wait, 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 wait. I think she loved him like she wanted him to date Janelle. I thought that you said that Chris was like a childhood friend to um, Janelle. That would they have known him? Well, Janelle told her parents that she knew him from school. Okay. So that's why I find it very hard to believe that Barbara would be like, oh, I never met him. However, she really wrote these like long messages to him. And she talked about how it would be so nice if he got together with Janelle. And she like, it was like, oh, you're basically a son to me. So I don't know. It's so weird. It's, it's really weird. So not a son Barbara could hug. Nothing from these emails indicated she ever saw her, in quotation, son in the flesh. And nothing from Jamie's emails indicated a reference to hanging out with his bud, going out for drinks, or talking on the back porch with Chris. Nothing. Barbara and Jamie had been catfished. So and we, Buddy. And Buddy. Yeah, Buddy by proxy. I mean, he was easy, but... 
Yeah. <laughs> In order to prove it, Brooks traced the IP address of the messages supposedly from Chris. And of course, it matched the computer used by both Janelle and Barbara in the Potter family home. Next, he enlisted the help from forensics linguistics expert, Dr. Robert Leonard. Dr. Leonard was a professor of linguistics at Hofstra University in New York, where he led the forensic linguistics program, the only one of its kind in the United States. He had aided law enforcement agencies around the country and testified for many companies, including Apple. Dr. Leonard had also been a founding member of the musical group Sha Na Na, which opened for Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock. What? Yeah, he's a really interesting guy who basically loved music, but was also like super intellectual. And he just like after Woodstock decided like he wanted to go down the linguistics path instead and be a, like a, oh God, my pregnancy brain is killing me. Like a, not a scholar, but like in academia. That's what I meant. Yeah. In oh academia. Oh my God. That is too funny. Man, musicians, brains, you gotta love it, huh? Yep. The first thing he needed from ADA Brooks was typed statements from both Barbara and Janelle to conclusively prove which woman was behind the Chris persona. So he needed them typed because they had to match like the typed emails. So he needed them in the same format, you know? Yeah. The Potters were still claiming that they were being harassed and had suffered some vandalism from townsfolk even after the murder. So they were saying that now people were retaliating against them and blah, 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 blah. So <laughs> yeah, you're murderers. <laughs> yeah, they had a good, if they were, they had good reason to. <laughs> they should be tagging your home, cold blooded murderers. Yeah, they should get the pitchforks out and chase you out of town. So yeah, so they they were invited into the station and the sheriff told the woman to sit at a computer and type up a written statement regarding the harassment. Brooks also went through Janelle's Facebook profile and confirmed which of the statuses she claimed to have actually written. Others she claimed were her enemies hacking her Facebook to make her look bad. Can't. I just... Some people should just not have the internet. And this family yeah, is one of them. 100%. Apparently she had so many of these like online harassment charges against her, not charges, but like complaints. That's what it was. Complaints against her that yeah. when her dad like went to the police station, one of the police officers was like, buddy, you should just throw her computer out the backyard because she keeps getting in trouble. And buddy was like really sad. And he's like, it's the only thing she has. Yeah. Well, that's sad. And it's like, whose fault is that? Exactly. Like you never taught her how to be independent. No. Yeah. Ugh. Based on the written evidence, Dr. Leonard concluded that Janelle was Chris and another alter, Matt Potter, and Barbara was just Barbara. Suddenly, the crime began to make a little more sense. Before law enforcement agencies had been stymied as to why two men who had absolutely never had a history of violence or legal trouble would suddenly brutally murder two innocent young parents. So, Dennis Brooks said, My decision to pursue criminal charges against Janelle did not take long. Good for you, Dennis Brooks. Yep. Assuming she was the author of all things written by Chris and Matt Potter, her emails showed a constant preoccupation with the activities of the victims and their friends. She wrote hateful, spiteful thoughts toward them. 
Moreover, she would author fake threats from Billie Jean's friend, Lindsay Thomas. Then she would copy and paste those threats into emails to Jamie and her mother. Messages that promised doom towards herself. Since she was also suggesting as Chris that the torment and the harassment from her enemies could very well end her life, I believe that by doing this, she was needling her father and Jamie to believe the killings were necessary since Lindsay appeared to be threatening her life. So she would say stuff like as Chris, like I am monitoring the situation. I'm like tapping their phones and they're all planning on how they're going to kill Janelle. Unreal. Mm-hmm. And of course... These people believe that he's a CIA agent. So they're like, oh my God, this is real information. He's tapping their phones. He knows. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I wish I had videotaped that because I'm sure it's going to come across on the podcast. (laughs) Your face went full emoji for that one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh god it's isn't the- that insane yeah it's mind-blowing that she was getting away with this and they these people are eating it up oh my god so dennis brooks decided to try janelle and barbara for the murders as well and in an effort to save the taxpayer some money he combined the cases against janelle barbara and jamie into one trial while Buddy, the actual trigger man, would face charges alone. And his, yeah, it's really smart. It's kind of like the accomplices in one trial. Yeah. And the guy who actually- Janelle is the mastermind behind the whole thing. So I feel like she should have been separate and then Uh Jamie and Barbara. Yeah. And that's the one he really wanted though. You can see in the book and even like when he's a talking head on these shows, he's like, but we all know it's Janelle, right? Like Janelle's the reason this happened. Yeah. Gosh, it reminds me, if I've already talked about this on the show, please stop me because it's something that matters so little to anyone else in the world, but so much to me. When I was in high school, I got to do a mock trial about Lord of the Flies. And you have not talked about this yet. (laughs) I haven't talked about it. It was a defining moment of my early youth. Um, and so I was like the lead prosecutor and what you were trying to prosecute was not basically that the kid who, um, pushed the boulder that killed Piggy. Yeah. He wasn't the murderer. You're not saying that he's the murderer. You're saying Jack, the one who was like the ringleader who started all the bullshit was the killer. And so they had been doing this mock trial in this English class for like five years and nobody ever got a guilty verdict. So I was like, I'm going to take this case and I'm going to win. And I like went to my dad's best friend who's a judge and like didn't even just bring him up on murder. It was like negligent homicide, manslaughter. I went for like seven charges. (laughs) And and I had to prove that this guy who didn't actually push the boulder was guilty. And I got guilty on every single charge. Of course you did. Yeah. And first time in uh, the school's history. So um, that's just a really lame, humble brag. I'm not even just humble. I'm just bragging about something that matters. Nothing at all from my youth. I'm really shocked that that didn't 
that that wasn't followed up by a of career in law. I, I really thought about it, but then I realized like out of practicing attorneys, like so few of them actually get to go to trial. It's like less than like 3% of all like legal cases go to trial or something. So I was like, that's the only part I like. I don't like doing the paperwork. I just like grandstanding. <laughs> so why do that when I can make you all listen to me on a podcast? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think we we found our way here, Andy. At least I did, and I pulled you along with me. Yes. <laughs> Some of the additional evidence compiled against Buddy was a garbage bag full of printouts of Chris's emails that had been shredded and apparently destined for a dumpster before the authorities searched Buddy's truck. So that was because they were printing out all of Chris's emails and then they were trying to get rid of evidence. So they shredded them. But then some poor person at the police station had to like tape all the emails back together. Them together. Yeah. yeah. So they didn't burn them. They just shredded them and they were still there. Exactly. So they found all these emails. The emails proved plotting between the Potters and the supposed CIA agent to kill Billie Jean and Bill Payne, as well as ample evidence of the fabricated threats Billie Jean, Billy, and Lindsay had made on Janelle's life. Yeah, because that's what CIA agents do. They kill bullies. Yeah. Also, why didn't these people stop and think if they're really a threat on Janelle's life, why isn't this law enforcement officer, this person who's with the CIA, stopping them from it happening? I don't think every any CIA agent was like, you know what I think would be great. I'm feeling a little lazy. Can you take them out for me? Can you just maybe just take, take them out your- and sign off? Yeah, like I, I was supposed to arrest them for, you know, attempted murder. But instead, I think you should just kill them because you know what law enforcement loves? Vigilante justice. We love that. Definitely everyone should do that. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, for one second, you'd think like, hey, if this is so serious, why aren't you doing anything about it? Arrest them, you know? Oh, my God. Ugh. So Brooks also introduced other emails taken from the Potter family computer to not only show motive to Buddy's slang of Billie Jean and Bill, but also to prove a conspiracy existed that Buddy acted upon and give people a taste of the upcoming trial against Barbara and Janelle. The case against Buddy was pretty straightforward. Not only had he confessed, he was also caught on the phone recording with Jamie and they had matched the bullets to Buddy's gun. I mean, it was just open and shut. In fact, they even talked about how he'd like doodled on the bullets. Like he basically signed his name. What? (laughs) He had for some reason like drawn pen marks on the bullets and they matched other like his initials it wasn't like his initials but it was like clear because they found in his home other bullets he had drawn on oh my god do you know what he wrote on him no i, I don't actually i wonder if we can dig up some photos i'll look um yeah so it was it was really obvious that obviously buddy did this if i said bud loves guns <laughs> it's like bud was here with like W-U-Z, but he was here. 
fun was her. Yeah. <laughs> so this was actually a great opportunity for Dennis Brooks to begin to float the Janelle as architect of the murders theory with her mother complicit before actually going to trial. So he knew he was going to win, you know, this buddy case. And so he could kind of start socializing the idea that, yes, this guy did it. He's still guilty. You know, you have to find him guilty. He's the one who killed them. But here's the motive behind it. And he could see what, you know, the jury thought of it later. Yeah. Buddy absolutely refused to implicate his wife and daughter in any way. So his defense attorney couldn't do much. I mean... I feel like there could have absolutely been some mitigation on Buddy's part if his defense had been able to run with the fact that he had been manipulated and tricked into believing his daughter's life was in jeopardy. You know, like if his defense attorney could could have said like, hey, Janelle was catfishing him. He really believed she was going to die. The jury would have felt bad for him, you know? For sure. But he he refused to throw Janelle under the bus. I also wonder if there was like, maybe a little wounded male ego there that he'd been like tricked so badly, you know? Yeah. I mean, if he's like a war vet too. He's a war vet. He's really proud. Yeah. And he'd always done everything within the limitations of the law. Like he was very like a proud patriot. I feel like he must've felt really sick to his stomach that his daughter tricked him into killing someone who was innocent. Yeah. I'd Mm. say. Yeah. The defense you shouldn't go around killing people. Yeah, I think you should just let the let the authorities do their job. Go to the police, yeah. turn them in, say the CIA agent is going to talk to you about these threats. Don't take it into your own hands. No. Yeah. The only time that is okay to kill somebody is if they're attacking you. And you have to do it to save your life. Yeah. Like actual self-defense. Actual self-defense, yes. The defense only offered a weak alternative suspect, a friend of Bill's who apparently had had some words with him about a small issue. There wasn't a shred of evidence that supported that man as a suspect. And of course, just overwhelming piles of evidence that showed that Buddy was the killer. Yeah. After several hours of deliberation, Buddy Potter was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to two back-to-back life sentences. Even more thrilling than Buddy's conviction for Brooks was that the jury polled that they believed Janelle and Barbara were complicit in the crime and that they would have voted for guilty had the women been on trial. So he he like basically quizzed the jury afterwards and that's what they said. So he's like, okay, this is great. This means... That if but I take, Jamie, uh, locked into that too, right? Jamie's locked into it too. So he he already knows he's going to get Jamie. I mean, Jamie also confessed to being at the murders. He didn't stop it. He didn't do anything. You know, like he's okay. he's complicit in in as far as he went along with it. He didn't warn them. He didn't. He never turned himself into the police like right after or anything. You know. Okay. Um. So he was pretty sure he was going to get Jamie. <sighs> he was a little less certain whether he could get Janelle and Barbara because they weren't physically present for the killing. And that's what a lot of like times people, it sticks in their head. Like, no, they weren't there. How could they have been, how can they be convicted of first degree murder if they weren't even physically at the place of the murder, you know? Yeah, but wouldn't that be conspiracy for murder? He was going for first degree. I mean, yeah, I mean, he, I think he could have decided to go for a lesser charge, but he really wanted to nail him. 
Immediately, Dennis sought to get Jamie to take a plea deal and testify against the Potter women. He felt strongly that Jamie had just been a dupe in the slaying of his cousin and his cousin's fiance, easily tricked into a murder plot due to concern over the only girlfriend he had ever had and a desire to win over her protective parents. Yeah. At first, Jamie seemed as willing to go down with the ship as Buddy had, and he refused any such deal. After months of cajoling, Jamie's defense attorney finally convinced him that his best bet was to take the deal and turn on the women. After being jailed for two full years, Jamie Curd finally was ready to give up on the love of his life. In exchange for testimony against Janelle and Barbara, Jamie was sentenced to 25 years behind bars. Okay. Seems fair. Yep. Dennis Brooks opened the Potter women's trial with a statement about the catfishing and selection of Janelle's writings as other people, mainly Matt and Chris. So this is how he opened the trial. Also, it's funny because... He wrote this whole book about this trial because he said he couldn't shake it. Like after the trial concluded, he was like still thinking about all the people that were involved. And his wife was like, you know what? You should write a book about this. This was a pretty wild case. Um, Yeah. But like so much of the book is like him being a badass at the trial. (laughs) Which is what it should be. It's like, I can only imagine, guys. I was just bragging about my freshman year mock trial in English class. Like if I ever was an actual attorney who like (laughs) prosecuted a really tough case, you would never hear the end of it. I would work it into every cocktail party. (laughs) No, you know that he like legit casted himself as like Bruce Willis. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like diehard Bruce Willis. And diehard like, Bruce Willis against the and like evil Matt when he fishers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the story is very, very simple. This is how he opened the trial. It's a story of a manufactured conflict born in the mind of a very bored, lonely 30-year-old woman. It's the seed that grows into a tree. And it's not just that seed. It's all the water and fertilizer that's put on that seed to make it grow and bear fruit. And all of that happened as a result of Janelle Potter's actions. I went straight to the pictures of each victim lying dead in their home. As that shock lingered, I moved into Janelle's writings penned under fictitious names, the worst ones I could find. So this is the first taste you guys are getting of these terrible emails. Just die. She is a waste being on earth, which is spelled like your waste, like your body part. Damn whore. There are all whores and always will be. And you can't make them into wives. They have 10 more men they sleep with. There's like no punctuation anywhere. They are not happy and they want Eva Tone else not to be happy. I think that's supposed to be everyone. Everyone. Mm-hmm. Fuck them. I'm happy Janelle is so sweet, caring, with an E, and will stand up for herself. What's Liz Nidier? Supposed to be Lindsay. And Billy do nothing but lie. It was was like L-I-S-N day. Liz Nidier. So spell check did exist in. Yeah, this is happening in like 2012. Yeah. 
do nothing but lie and try to get others hurt. Fuck them. I hope they die, die, die. And that baby and Bill. Whoa. Mm-hmm. He said this in court. Yeah. So he was like, well, they just saw the images of the bodies. So he's like, reading these out loud. Associating it, yeah. Yep, and he kind of had to do it because, you know, you guys will see pictures of Janelle. The way she talks, the way she looks, she looks very meek and mild-mannered. She looks very ordinary. She looks like she would be more of the victim of a crime. Like, you know, there's just something very, like, like timid about her. So they're looking at this, like, timid, overgrown girl child and he has to really drive home the point that she's the evil mastermind behind this. So he's got the images up and now he's reading, you know, the emails. I made sure to place special emphasis on the die, die, die and that baby and Bill more. I'm about to fight with you, Billy. Why don't you shut up your fucking mouth, you bitch? Actually, it was month. Fucking month, you bitch. One day, girl, you are going to get beat up really good and left for dead. So this is also like a supposedly coming from this character she created, Matt Potter. You better shut up. Another character? This is another one of her alter egos. You better shut up, you bitch. Go fuck a cow for all I care. Damn hooker slut bag whore. And your bastard, spelled incorrectly, Baby, take it with you and you leave this fucking town. You won't leave here alive. Keep on doing your damn fucking shit, bitch. Fuck you and Bill and your fucking so-called baby. Go after my wife again, you little fucking whorebag. I hope you die and I hope it's a painful death. You're a So Matt's supposed to be Janelle's husband? I guess it was her fake husband. This is crazy. It's real. There's like so much more. I'm just reading like a few of them. Like it's like the end of like the next one was something that Matt Potter, like I guess her fake husband posted online and it goes on and on. And it says something like it, it accuses these women of having like HIV and that they're all terrible. And it says damn whores. Why don't you die, bitch, die, then saying that to my sister? So now he's her brother? Because before it was this, I don't know. Die, 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 bitch, fucking wolf, wolf, dog face, bitch. Your mom is really fat and one day you will be too. So he's reading these in court and they're all like looking at Janelle being like, what the hell? I had the jury's attention. I hoped I was wiping away that impression of Janelle looking scared. Or ordinary. As I told the jury, they would see these and many more writings where the hate dripped off the pages. And I promised them that we would prove in their minds that those messages were written by that woman as I turned and pointed at Janelle. She would not look at me. For good measure, I included some of Barbara's writings, including this email. If someone wants to bring it on, they will all die, including the baby. Like, why would anyone say that? Yeah, we know that Lindsay is the one pushing this along, but Bill, Billy, Tara, all of their mean buddies are enjoying it and he can't act or think alone. He has to have his gang, you know? Well, they may as well stay at home because there's no getting Jen, no way, no how, which is what they called Janelle. They called her Jen. 
So next they brought in Dr. Leonard to testify to the linguistics and digital forensics officers to discuss the IP address and other evidence that all of the manipulative and scheming emails came from Janelle's computer and even her own email address. It's not even like they had to do an IP search. No. It's like... <laughs> After proving that Chris was Janelle, Dennis read a selection of the absolutely illiterate emails that Chris, Jamie, and Barbara exchanged in the weeks leading up to the murder. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Even more. Here we go. So in one, Barbara hinted that a plan was in the works. She was writing to Jamie about the plot to kill... So she, yeah, so she did plan it. She did, but, so she she did plan the murder for sure. But I, the question I thought we were asking before is whether she knew Chris was real or not. Yes, that, that that's when I, I asked that. Okay. But then separately, yeah. it's like, it's like, yeah. She was you, 100% up to her tits in this murder. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I thought maybe she was like overpassed a little and that's why they were like worried about tests of of like about um convicting her no but yeah she definitely definitely knew all of this was going down but the question is whether she knew her daughter was the one who was masterminding it and I don't think she did I have emailed Chris that we are ready to go to the movies she put in quotations next Friday or Saturday so let me know the time day and to text you I hope that is okay he will get the message that the time is next weekend like basically the movies was the co-word for killing them Chris I feel like this wasn't there someone who we covered who like didn't even use code words yeah. so at least they had the code words <laughs> at least they had the code there was somebody who was just straight up when are we gonna kill him guys when we get in, in the car for the murder the murder we're going to <laughs> the murder that i'm willingly participating in and planning in this email <laughs> oh my god Chris kept encouraging Barbara, writing, I can't wait for you and Buddy and us to do our jobs. Perhaps feeling like she needed to help reassure Jamie, Barbara suggested, if you talk or text with Chris, ask him if he thinks the CIA will back up Buddy if he takes it into his own hands. Not an email, but a text. They are trying to kill Janelle little by little. In December, Barbara updated Chris on what she had told Buddy and Jamie. I did tell B and J you said their backs are covered well, and that is all good. But dad knows that, but says that he will do whatever it takes, no matter who's around. Wrong who's. They are glad CIA is around, but they say they will be able to handle it all but good to know. Chris wrote back urging haste due to what he was learning from the CIA about the pain residents. This is far from over with them. They are not laying low at all. They are plotting something, but I think that will be taken care of. They are waiting to see Janelle out and by herself, and then they will hurt her. Chris then reiterated his support in this message to Barbara. We got Jamie's back and tell Jamie to stay if he wants any time because they are after him a lot. And no need of this fucking shit. We are pissed off, guys. We will be around. 
Chris pressed further, stating that Janelle's safety was getting more doubtful in the face of threats by people who felt she was too pretty. Here we go again. Whoa. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Also, as I read this next selection, and it completely devolves into madness, let's keep in mind that this is supposed to be a CIA agent and that there are people on the other end of this email who believe it is a CIA agent. Isn't there something like illegal about impersonating a CIA agent? Like I'm sure there has to be some sort of law against that. Oh yeah. I think there absolutely is. But I mean, compared to first degree murder, if they can nail her on that, I don't think they're really worried about that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, of course. but But yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm sure. It might have, might you might have to like falsify credentials or something though. Cause like he just told them he was a CIA agent. They believed it. It's not like he like showed a mock badge or something. It's not like he had his own email address. It's not like it was like Chris CIA agent at hotmail.com. <laughs> Chris definitely CIA at Yahoo. Chris. Undercover Chris. Undercover Chris with CIA at linksis.net. Not internet. Earthlinks dot, and linksis. That's right. Dot, dot earthlink. <laughs> dot Tennessee. Dot mountain city. Dot. <laughs> dot edu. Dot edu. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, so oh, wow. Going into this is next Chris email. Just remember, he's supposed to be a CIA agent. Now they want to hurt and kill Janelle. She is the main one. There is a plot just for Janelle. So make sure she is always with someone and close, very close. Well, I'm happy everyone that needs to carry is carrying and ready because you just don't know right now. I will say in a week or less, it's going to get worse and nothing else needs to come you all's way. But with B and J, I think things should go great. How have you been, mom? I don't care what they read or think. It just goes to show they are just evil and mean and that baby was never wanted and look how they treat it. I hope maybe it should die. It come from the devil. What? Them two making the thing. They can't stand it that Janelle is so pretty and so truthful and just a great person. Lindsay is no good for nothing, and she needs to put a bag overhead and breathe hard. LMAO. How would you believe this is a CIA agent? Or pull her lip overhead and just swallow. LMAO. Ew. Her fucking ugly face and neck, dot, dot, dot. Saw her at the store today. Icky. She wears short dresses. What? What? So Chris is... Chris is in Mountain City? Yes, they they believe that he's in Mountain City, but he can't hang out with them because he's so far undercover. Oh, wow. The last communication we found from Chris to Barbara was one of the recovered shreds. It had a date on the bottom of the page showing January 25th, 2012 as the date printed. From its tone, I told the jury that by this time, Janelle had run out of patience. It was time for blood. I hope Buddy and him get them and ASAP would be great. But anyways, yes, whore fucking Lindsay moved in with Tim 
and no cell phone. And her birthday is the 26th of Jan. I hope she dies before then. Damn fucking whore. She is no good. Wow. Yeah. And Lindsay confirmed that that was her birthday. Wow. Lindsay probably is just like, was so shook. Oh my God. Lindsay had no idea. They interview her on one of the shows and she just had no idea that she was that close to death. Like Whoa. no idea. So this happened on January 31st. Mm-hmm. You know, that's today. Oh my God. It is. <gasps> yeah. I keep doing this. I keep picking I, accidental I stories. I thought it was 21st at first. No, it was so the 31st. Yeah. Because I thought you would have said, which is nice from today but you didn't well I also wrote this one a little while ago so I yeah well like Forgot. a week ago still I mean I should have got I wrote it a week ago whatever oh my god <laughs> I, think I, week. I think I just don't know what day it is <laughs> understandable yeah <laughs> the final email that we presented was not a message at all it was an email Barbara had sent to herself, presumably so that she could save the web page link that was contained within it. Dated January 16th, 2012, a mere 15 days before the murders of Bill Payne and Billie Jean Hayworth, the web page had this title Can God Forgive a Murderer? Christian News. Agent Lott had testified that when he clicked on that <laughs> link, she emailed this to herself, like really leaving just the breadcrumbs right out there. It's not even breadcrumbs. She like painted her loaves. Yeah, they were loaves. <laughs> it's true. She was, bitch was dropping she loaves. She baguettes. <laughs> Pointing at her. Mm-hmm. So it was an article written by Billy Graham. The Reverend had written a response to a killer in prison who asked if he could be forgiven for his sins. Barbara had all of her bases covered. Oh, yeah, she did. Yup. She's got that web, web page link. She's ready to go. She's ready to go to the movies. She's ready to go to the movies. Before Star Witness, Jamie Curd testified, Dennis Brooks introduced a surprise guest that no episode of Catfish could go without. The real Chris. I thought you were going to say Neve. <laughs> and then it's just like wild. He just shows up to testify. He's like, I know a lot about catfishes. Have you seen the documentary? Maybe the show on MTV. Did you see Dancing you with see the Stars? I'm not a show. It, it, I created catfish. So I'm here to talk about catfishes. <laughs> no, that would have been amazing. I think he should start testifying in catfish trials. Um, I think so too. That's his next career. <laughs> next career path. If things ever slow down in Hollywood, you could be an expert witness. <laughs> the real Chris was a man named Chris Jaden, a high school classmate of Janelle's whom she had an unrequited crush on. Janelle had borrowed photos from Chris's public Facebook, as well as details from the real Chris's life. Like the fake Chris, Chris Jaden was also in law enforcement, a police officer in Delaware who worked as a constable in a hospital, however, not CIA. For the prosecution team, it was valuable that there was a real person and face behind the Chris persona. The fact that it was a guy from Janelle's schoolgirl past proved beyond any doubt that she was the author of everything Chris. 
When Dennis spoke with Chris the night before his testimony, he remembered years ago receiving a Facebook friend request from Janelle. He accepted it and perhaps curious about what had happened to this odd acquaintance, checked out her page. He saw a bunch of crazed religious commentary on her part and unfriended (laughs) her within minutes of accepting the request. Oh, my God. She possibly never even realized she was briefly friends with her crush. The pictures she had lifted from his Facebook page were his profile pictures. Such photos were available to anyone venturing his way. One that was used was a photo of him with his arms crossed in front of a picture at the House of Blues in Atlantic City. Another was of him propped up against a car. There was one of him at a bonfire, yet another one of him at a Philadelphia Phillies game. So this is when he's on the stand. In his testimony, Chris said Janelle was very bizarre. She was one of those kids who was very strange. She always had issues. She was always complaining about a problem with somebody. Whiners. <laughs> hmm And somebody who, like, thinks that everybody's out to get them. She seems to have a very, like, elevated sense of her own importance, you know, that she thinks, like, everybody cares about her or is jealous of her or wants to get her, you know? Because she, she's so pretty. Because she's so pretty and nice and sweet and truthful. Did you talk to Janelle? Periodically. I was one of the more popular kids in high school. I wasn't rude to anybody. I was kind of just friends with everybody in high school. If Janelle passed me in the hallway, I would have said hi or just had a little conversation here or there. Nothing too extravagant. Whenever you would talk to her, would she approach you or would you approach her? Sometimes she would approach me. You know, I'd be sitting with a group of friends and she would just come over and start a conversation, try to chime in with everyone who was sitting at the table. Whenever she would approach you, would she wait around for you to come by or seek you out? I think it was more of a seeking out type of thing, kind of randomly popping up in the hallway where I was. At that point, defense attorney Hyder objected on Janelle's behalf. The jury was sent out and Judge Blackwood cut off further questions about Janelle in high school on a relevance basis. Oh, come on. Thus, (laughs) Thus, the jury never heard about how she would have tantrums and usually be in trouble for her behavior. People kept their distance from her. The story of her high school years sounded exactly like the story of her in Johnson County. She was the perpetual outsider. The defense argued that perhaps Jamie was Chris, which would be ignoring all of the linguistics evidence and a big one, the IP address. Their primary argument was that Janelle, who had a disability and some intellectual limitations with a low IQ of 72, could not possibly be smart enough to mastermind a double murder and a complex catfish scheme. Which just doesn't make sense. It's not a good argument because she did. There was proof that she did. Exactly. (laughs) It doesn't really work. So instead, her defense is just insulting her. It's just saying like, no, she's she can't do that. She's too dumb. It's like, no, but she did. <laughs> a neuropsychologist named Dr. Engum testified for the defense that Janelle had the mental functioning of a fourth grader. Brooks asked him if a nine-year-old could still be manipulative. Dr. Engum conceded that they could, saying nine-year-olds manipulate their parents all of the time. And the manipulation of her parents was exactly what caused the murders. So points to Dennis Brooks right there with that cross-examination. Yep. (laughs) In his closing statements, Dennis asked the jury to close their eyes and imagine the killings happening without Janelle or Barbara instigating the way they had. 
He said, if you can't imagine these crimes happening without these women, then you know in your heart what your verdict must be. You have before you the two most responsible for Bill Payne and Billie Jean Hayworth lying there dead and a live baby that was left without a parent back in 2012. We ask you to bring justice for these deaths. Oof. Good point. I mean, that's really the point of it. Like, would this, would these tragedies have occurred without Janelle especially and her mother? 100% no, no. Yeah. It took the jury only four and a half hours to deliberate, which is like you know, one and a half hours of deliberation and three hours for lunch, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And when they came back, they proclaimed Barbara and Janelle guilty of first degree murder. Wowza. Mm -hmm. The women were given life sentences. Neither Janelle nor Barbara will be eligible for parole until 2070 at the very earliest. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah, they, they go and die there. Whoa. Buddy will spend the rest of his natural life behind bars due to his daughter's deception and his wife's cruel encouragement. Dennis Brooks noted that though Buddy has never commented on how he was deceived into murder, his silence speaks volumes. If he had been willing, he could have testified at Janelle and Barbara's trial that he was the sole murderer and that Janelle slash Chris and Barbara did not coerce him into the killings which probably could have convinced a jury not to convict the women if he just was like, I'm going to testify on their behalf. This was all my idea. I'm already convicted of the killings. I did it, you know, but he didn't, which seems telling if he refused. I'm sure that their defense attorneys must have approached him to try to get him to say that, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He also refused to speak to 2020 or any other news outlet. But he remains legally married to Barbara and has never commented on it. But I don't really know. With both of them locked up for the rest of their lives, I don't know what kind of marriage that is or how you celebrate your Uh, golden anniversary there. (laughs) It's your iron anniversary every single day. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. In 2015, after serving three and a half years of his 25-year sentence in prison, Jamie Curd was up for parole, but it was denied. Billy Payne's mother began a Change.org petition to keep Curd behind bars, which was signed by over 1,500 people. His next parole hearing is scheduled for this November 2021, and he is guaranteed to be released by 2033, which I think... I don't know. I don't, I think three and a half years is definitely not enough, but I don't know. By 2033, I think he's definitely served his time, you know? Yep. Yep. I agree. In October of 2015, Barbara and Janelle appeared on 2020 and they were still totally full of shit. Stop. Oh my God. It's infuriating to watch them. Barbara suggested somehow all of this was Jamie's doing. And she claimed to have absolutely no idea who Chris was. Like she was saying, I don't know. I guess it was just somebody who tricked us. Oh my God. Like always the victim, huh? Always the victim. And this is the mother. 
And so, like, I don't know if she's stupid, delusional, just like, you know, a mama bear for her diabolical daughter. But she sat in that courtroom, too, and heard the evidence. So you'd think she would have realized that Chris was Janelle all along. So she's, I just, I don't know whether she's actually believing her lies now or if she's realized it and she's just still covering for her daughter, you know? Yeah, I mean, that, like, happens, though. You, like, trick yourself into, like, believing lies. It's like... Or she's even... Or she's like, you know what? I I don't care that my daughter did this. I'm not going to call her a liar on television, you know? Yep, exactly. Ugh, Janelle played the victim for the cameras, speaking tearfully about all of the bullying and harassment she faced from the people she got murdered. Like, she literally was on the show being like, they were so mean to me. and They threatened my life and they were going to hurt me. And it was so scary. You've got to be kidding me. Uh-huh. She's like crying. It's like, mm, sorry, don't feel bad for you. Who's alive and who's dead and whose fault is that, you know? Wow. Wow. I like this host was good though. I, I can't remember his name, but he was on the 2020 and he was like, but you're Chris. And she's like, no. And he's like, come on, Janelle, we all know you're Chris. You're Chris. And she's like, no. <laughs> so she, so the host pushed her to admit she was Chris like once and for all. And she just burst into tears and walked off set. Like she's oh. like, no. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. It's just, it's a typical also like people, it's a manipulation tactic to always pretend to be the victim, to always be like, why are you attacking me and start crying? Because usually that renders the other person unable to continue to like hold you to your responsibility, you know, or to like, you know, take account for what you've done. And so if they keep like bursting into tears, you can never move forward in the conversation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just typical, like behind her keyboard, she talked a big game and she liked to manipulate others into doing her dirty work. But like, as soon as she's faced with her crimes, she just cries like a little baby. Yeah. Or it like has to take any accountability. Yeah. It's all, nothing's mm-hmm. her fault. Nothing's her fault. Not tough anymore. Yeah, so she didn't admit it. They, like, concluded the whole 2020. Her, like, lawyer was with her, and he's like, this interview's over. And oh so that my was God. <laughs> yeah, and as far as her low IQ goes, I guess 72 is categorized as well below average. But I feel like if her attorney had admitted to the catfishing but argued that due to her intellectual limitations, she did not understand the implications of her actions, then that could have been a way more compelling argument, don't you think? Yes, yeah. Like, he could have said, yes, like, she is, you know, she has a hearing disability. She is, you know, has a rather low IQ. She, when she was, like, creating this fantasy world, just like a child she didn't realize the implications of what could result from that, you know? No, Yeah, but like she, I feel like she knew. What she, she knew, and I, I think she did know, but I just think the defense attorney should have gone that way rather than saying she didn't do it at all when the evidence was clear as day that she did, you know? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> it's like, 
Jeez, that is a bad defense. It's like, she didn't do it. It's like, here's the IP address. Here's a linguistics expert. Here's like, this is from her email address. It's coming from inside the house. (laughs) But she says she didn't do it. So we're just going to go with that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And like I mentioned very briefly in the very beginning, Dennis Brooks also wondered if Janelle had been allowed to have a life get even a part-time job, learn to drive, had been allowed to have boyfriends, maybe her dangerous impulses would have remained in check. I mean, yeah, what do you think? You can do with an IQ of 72. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I meet a lot of people in my daily life that I'm pretty sure have a 72 or less and they are out there and functioning in the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you absolutely can. Um, you know? Ugh. You don't have to be Mensa to have a satisfying, independent life. (laughs) The tagline of this this episode. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Well, that is the crazy catfishing murders of Tennessee. Jessica. Andrea, what a ride, huh? In conclusion, if you're gonna catfish, at least get a new email address. <laughs> Even if it is a Yahoo or a Hotmail or a Linksys or an Earthlink.net. <laughs> yeah, that would have been wise. Um, you know what else would have been wise is you probably shouldn't scribble on bullets that you're going to use to murder people. <laughs> 100%. Nothing says I'm guilty like matching doodle bullets. and as always we are all just one crazy catfish away from getting murdered stay safe out there kids be careful on the interwebs yes absolutely and thanks for listening good night bye